Hey, Al. So I've been thinking about Santa Claus. It's mid-February, Miles. Are you not a bit late? I mean, from another perspective, it's around March 1079th, 2020. So uh, let's not sweat the small stuff. Yeah, fair enough, I guess. So, Santa Claus. Right. I mean, we know he's in the Marvel Universe, just like other public domain and mythological figures. Like Dracula. Did he ever fight Dracula? I don't think so, although I would totally read that. Uh, no, Santa's track record is actually pretty mixed when it comes to interacting with villains. That can't be right. He's Santa Claus. A friend to all children. Just like Gamera. Well, it's not usually his fault. He was only swindled into building an unstable nuclear reactor at the North Pole because the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals forced him to stop using reindeer labor. I hope he learned to be a little less trusting after that. Well, I hate to dash your hopes here on not actually Christmas, Miles, but that is a no. Later on, he got depressed by the state of the world and sold his whole operation to Hydra for a while. Okay, but that's that's two times. I refuse to let two mistakes sully my opinion of frickin' Santa Claus. Surely, Al, we can count on his moral certitude and humanistic bravery in these trying times. Surely he's faced evil and triumphed to save us all. Well, I mean, you know, Santa did emerge victorious more than once in battles against the man who's perhaps his greatest nemesis. The district attorney from Miracle on 34th Street? That guy John Lithgow played in Santa Claus the Movie? The Krampus? Nope. Adolf Hitler. What?! I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Al Kennedy, filling in for Jay Edison while he's on parental leave. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 401 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to another transitional episode, because we are having creative teams shift left and right. Uh, what do we have on the plate for today, Al? So, today we're talking about Generation X where we're moving away from the classic Generation X creators for the last time. And we're moving into, well, an unexpected choice of new writer, I would say, probably. Larry Hammer, who people may know from things like G.I. Joe, where you know, he, he wrote G.I. Joe for basically ever. And he gave loads of them their names and their personalities and things like that. And also Wolverine, where he did a good long run on that as well, where... Um, it was fun, it was dumb, but it was fun. And I'm not sure anybody would ever have picked him for Generation X unless they were drawing, you know, bingo balls out of a pot or something. Right, I mean, the main thing I remember from his Wolverine run is that he writes Wolverine like an old-timey prospector. Wolverine sounds like your delightful curmudgeonly murder grandpa. <laughs> And that's not the writer that I would necessarily pick for a bunch of teenagers. That being said, I love Hama's writing style. So coming into this, I was pretty optimistic. And having read through this strange collection of issues, I'm still not really sure what to make of the whole thing. Mm, this is my first time reading any of these issues. So I was coming into this completely fresh. And I have to say, it was not what I was expecting. 
And I'm not necessarily sure that that was a good thing. That is entirely valid. But uh, fortunately for you, and perhaps fortunately for the listeners, depending on their individual opinions, of the three and a half-ish issues we're covering today, only one of them is actually from the new Larry Hama run. The Next Generation Next Story is this massive thing about M-plate, so we didn't want to get into that quite yet. So we have this grab bag. And before we dive in, maybe we should talk about what happened previously on Generation X. So... There have been multiple generations of mutants in the X-Books over the years. First generation, obviously, the X-Men. Second generation, the new mutants. Third-ish, depending on how you cut it, were Generation X. They're not part of Xavier's actual school lineup, though. They're never part of any of his graduating classes because they never grew up under the tutelage of Professor X himself. Their headmasters are former X-Man Banshee and former villain Emma Frost. And instead of being at the school at 1407 Gray Malkin Lane in New York, they are at the new Xavier School in Massachusetts. I have to say, as a child of 13 or whatever, 14, reading these comics in Scotland with little to no knowledge of geography... Um, they could have told me that, you know, one of them was in Salem Centre and one of them was in Massachusetts. And I would have been like, OK, are, are they two miles apart? Are they 5,000 miles apart? <laughs> I have literally no frame of reference whatsoever. But um, as I got older and I realised that Emma Frost's accent, apart from anything else, seems to be um, Bostonian but hiding it, uh, it makes a lot more sense that she would pick some of the nicer leafier parts of massachusetts to to set up her academy i do love when a writer can get across has an accent but hiding it usually as far as we get in comics is i don't know what gambit is doing but i assume it is vaguely related to louisiana (laughs) exactly but the team themselves are jubilee former x-man cannonball's ambitious sister husk the agreeable if thus far fairly poorly defined sink, cynical former gang member skin, mopey goth chamber, and arrogant, perfect, and slightly odd M. Or maybe one more student than that, because in a fight that the team got into at the end of Operation Zero Tolerance, M was buried under a bunch of rubble, and was later found underneath that rubble to actually be two young twin girls. Yeah, the fact that M is basically two kids in a big coat trying to sneak into the cinema has always been a terrific plot twist from from my perspective like i would just love to see more of that like they just break up and run around causing havoc and like thing one and thing two and then they just recombine into this statuesque um genius bruiser and now i just want to call the two twins thing one and thing two i mean easier to remember than claudette and Nicole, Yvette, something like that. Something like, something French. Amelie, yeah. Amelie and Buffbergnon, something like that. No, no, canon, there we go. So, we're going to get heavily into the nature of Amelie and Thing 2 pretty soon. Like we mentioned, there's a big M-plate story coming up. But until then, we have a bit of a Generation X grab bag, and that begins with a fill-in issue. Generation X number 32, A Day at the Circus. It's written by Tom DeFalco, it's penciled by Mark Buckingham, inks are by Al Vey, John Holdridge, and Scott Hanna, 
colours by Christos Mayor, and letters by Rich Starkins and Comcraft and Emerson Miranda. The A plot in this issue is is kind of fun, but it's really very disposable. It is a fill-in issue in every way, really. Tom DeFalco is not the writer that you would associate with really any X books at all. Mark Buckingham, you would kind of associate him with Chris Pachalo because they obviously worked together many times uh, before in the past. But Tom, even Tom DeFalco and Mark Buckingham together are not necessarily a team that you would expect. But as far as the actual plot of that issue goes, essentially Husk convinces Generation X to go to the circus because they've been through a lot and they need to chill and relax and, and, and kind of unwind a bit. And while they're there, Sink is blaming his kissing M during Operation Zero Tolerance for splitting her into the two kids. Man, Catholicism ain't got nothing on that level of guilt. Yeah, absolutely. Jubilee is blaming herself for giving up the X-Men's information to Bastion. And Chamber and Skin and Sink and Jubilee would pretty much rather stay at home than go to the circus, which, given everything they've been through, makes sense. As Jubilee herself says, But that ain't in our script. So they get to the circus, and of course, if you're in the Marvel Universe and you're at a circus, you will encounter the Circus of Crime, who are hypnotizing the audience to steal their stuff. It's a very easy fight for Generation X. They beat the Circus of Crime, they convince them to go legit. It's an extremely Route 1 story, but under Buckingham's pen, it actually has a bit of charm. It is by no means an essential bit of reading. But, meanwhile... On Muir Island, we see two characters together that we haven't seen together in ages, that being Banshee and Moira McTaggart. They were in a relationship for ages. Banshee lived on Muir Island with Moira, presumably having all sorts of wild, passionate sex together, as Jay and I have uh, talked more about than probably anyone ever wanted to hear. And that was the case until Banshee left to go found Generation X, and since then we've barely seen them interact. Yeah, Banshee has gone back to Muir Isle to visit with Moira to talk about the M-Twins. He's wearing his usual Larry Bird Celtics jacket, which is great. It's a, a style uh, icon at this point. And he's come to visit Moira and see how she's doing. And also, he's not sure if M is right or not. Whether this merged teen state is actually what she's supposed to be like, or whether this is just weird. He thankfully didn't actually bring the girls with him because Moira has the legacy virus. Let's not forget he's, you know, he's running an X-Men related school, but he's not that much of a child in danger. It's a panel in this actually weirdly where Moira looks incredibly happy when she says she's carrying a parasite. It's a very bizarre moment. You know, even an artist like Mark Buckingham can't get it right every panel. But this transitions to the two of them talking about what is perhaps the bigger thing, Moira's infection, the fact that Moira has what thus far seems to be a terminal illness. And she tells Banshee, I have my good days, and I try to keep a stiff upper lip during my bad ones. I'm so happy to finally have a Scott on the show to do Moira's lines. I think that's the first time they've been done even vaguely in the right direction. Well, I have to say that they're still not in anywhere near the ballpark of right, but at least when I do them, it's not offensive. Except to other Scottish people. <laughs> you know, that's an improvement. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah, and Banshee himself is pretty sure that actually all Moira really needs is a bit of a break. He is 
quite keen to make sure that she is taking care of herself. And while he's ostensibly there to make sure that there's nothing particularly wrong with the, the M girls, he's really there to make sure that nothing is wrong with his M girl, Moira. As he says, What do you say, lass? How's about we try for another giggle or two? She is very resistant to this because her research on the legacy virus is critical. And she mentions this thing about how X-Man and Cable have got very similar DNA. For such a long time, that looked like where they were going with the legacy virus. Like Strife had planted the antidote in his own genetic code or something like that. But no, it eventually just became Colossus being sad about something. But he says he misses her. And so they decide, well, fine, let's go off for a picnic on a cliffside and kiss. It'd be adorable. And it's pretty great. And we actually will see more of the Gen X cast on Mirror Island over in Excalibur, which we'll get to soon. But here's the thing. We were looking at this issue, and like you said, Al, the circus story, like, it's fine, but there's really nothing too special about it. So I was thinking, what about circus-related fill-in issues the podcast has never covered that at least have the advantage of being utterly bananas? And that reminded me of New Mutants number 92. When the Carnival Comes to Town, written by Dwight Zimmerman, penciled by Bob Hall, inked by Jeff Albrecht, colored by Nell Yumtov, lettered by Michael Heisler. So we promised to cover this issue back in Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, episode 147. That was back in early 2017, and we never did. And thus, all these years later, here we are. This is the plot line. Uh, the 12 essentially being picked up, isn't it? This is the uh, the dangling threads from earlier episodes of the of the podcast. Exactly. Uh, hopefully it'll be less of a disappointment than the 12 turned out to be. But uh, <laughs> listeners, you be the judge. So as for the creative team, Dwight Zimmerman, he did a bunch of random stuff for Marvel. He also did the Pirates of Darkwater comic. Do you remember that show at all, Al? I remember Pirates of Darkwater. The only thing I remember about it is that the main character was called Ren, I seem to remember. And I really, really wanted the Pirates of Dark Water toys when they came out. And I remember seeing them in a shop and thinking, wow, those look like really bad toys, but I still want them. And I was never bought any Pirates of Dark Water toys. And I have to say, that I think that I dodged a bullet on that one. That may be true. My experience was that I would only ever catch, like, the tail end of an episode, and I never knew what was going on plot-wise, but it always seemed like there was this big, complicated thing going on. That happened as well with a show called Spartacus and the Sun Beneath the Sea. It was this French cartoon that I would only ever catch tiny little bits of the apparently very complex plot. I don't know if it really was or not. But uh, anyway, Dwight Zimmerman, I guess, would probably know a lot about the Pirates of Darkwater. As for Bob Hall's art, it kind of reminds me of John Bogdanov at his early 90s sloppiest. Like, characters have weird proportions and mostly blank backgrounds, but I also kind of love it. Yeah, it's it's actually terrific. It's such a different take on these characters than how they were being portrayed at the time, because obviously at, at this point in time, the New Mutants were generally under the pen of Rob Liefeld. And whatever you think of Liefeld's art, it certainly is very distinctively his style. So having somebody like Bob Hall do this issue means you get the opportunity to take a very different approach to the way a lot of these characters look. Cable in particular in this issue 
is he's much more slimline. He's much taller. He almost looks kind of Bowie-esque in places. You are not wrong. And those are not two people I would ever expect to have anything in common. No, one of them is this strange messenger from another time who came back and died and hopefully will be resurrected at some point. And the other is Cable. (laughs) Well, Cable and Wolfsbane are currently dodging lasers in the Danger Room. Wolfsbane in this opening splash page looks like... And UK people and Twitter people will be with me on this and everybody else might just have to hang on for a moment. She looks like Hacker the Dog from UK Children's Television. Hacker the Dog is a puppet who presents links between kids' shows and it looks almost exactly like Wolfsbane on this first page. He was subject of a, a meme last year where... Um, he was talking to a clip went around of him talking to one of the presenters and he was snorting at something and she's like what and he says we're just normal men just innocent men and caused the human presenter to corpse so entirely that she like she couldn't breathe her face was red like she was just crying with laughter as this puppet continued to kind of improvise around her because otherwise it was just going to be a completely dead link. Anyway, hack of the dog. Bit of British culture there for you. I had no idea about any of this. Delightful! (laughs) Yeah, so he's got a great way with the the way these characters look on the page, but he he has a lot of charm to the way he, he draws as well. Like, I love the way he does Richter in this issue, um, I love the way he does Boom Boom. I love the way he does... Uh, there is a guy later on who is an animal trainer who we will come on to, but he makes him look like the character find of 1990 or whatever this was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there should have been a trading card for that guy. I mean, there probably was. Let's be real. So this was, as is from about 1990-ish, it was early on in the days of Cable leading the New Mutants. And so Cable and Wolfsbane have not really felt each other out that much. They're not used to each other yet. And Cable is showing off his unique style of instruction. Push it, girl. Push it. Which I assume he follows up with, this dance ain't for everybody, only the sexy people. So all you fly mothers, get out there and dance. (laughs) Listeners, I know only uh, certain of you from a certain era know what the hell I was just talking about. The rest of you, you didn't miss much. (laughs) Well, Wolfsbane, it turns out, is actually keeping up pretty well with Cable, so he decides he needs to kind of step it up a little bit. So he surprises her with a new scene, which is a giant clown that tries to step on her. And Wolfsbane freaks out, like, more than you would normally freak out when a giant clown tries to step on you. Yeah, because it it turns out that apparently Cable regards this as the case of the corrupted carnival. Okay, why don't the New Mutants name all of their missions this way? Like, the case of the Roman Rapstallions? The case of the Brobdingnagian Bear? The case of the Satanic Sorceress? The case of the dramatically deceased Doug? Oof. Uh, in the case of the Surly Cyborg! Like, seriously, Marvel, I know there's the Epic Collection thing. Retitle all of them, please. 
<laughs> yes, the new mutants case files. This is what it should be. Just make it sound like it's some kind of Nancy Drew spin-off or something. Anyway, so it's time to flash back to Rain's trauma, by which we mean flashback to a fill-in story from their past. So this fill-in story within this issue, this was a vacation they took uh, soon after Inferno, but like Mirage, Warlock, Rusty, and Skids aren't there. This lineup is actually more like the one from the framing story set in the early 90s. It's ambiguous, but it also kind of doesn't matter. In this case, they're on vacation in Kentucky, near where Sam grew up, where Cannonball grew up. And Cannonball's mom has taken Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Richter, and Boom Boom to a county fair. And this makes me realize more than anything how much I miss Boom Boom's design from this era, with like the giant pointy sunglasses and the big pink hair bow. This is just like my favorite Boom Boom from around here. She looks amazing. They should absolutely bring back those sunglasses. I mean, we do know that on Krakoa, uh, the editorial rule is that the X-Men can wear any costume they've ever worn, so Tabitha totally could. Yeah, I think they should have less of her wearing next wave jackets and more of her wearing massive scrunchies. Yes, and suspenders. (laughs) So the kids are, are freaked out at first and then delighted by all of the various tame circus animals being trained by the guy we mentioned before with his long hair and bare chest and big smile. He should be, like, they should just bring him back and have him join the X-Men, maybe lead the X-Men, and get several spin-off titles. He could be the new Deadpool. Seriously, just get rid of Deadpool or replace it with this guy, whose name I can't really remember. Sebastian, I think. Uh, That seems about right. Uh, Boom Boom's freak out is the most delightful one because she's Boom Boom. Yeah, she says, yeep, which not enough people do. Wolfsbane, this is past Wolfsbane, not Wolfsbane who's pushing it, girl pushing it. She's hypnotized by a nice-smelling teddy bear, which is a prize at a rigged throw-baseballs-at-bottles game. Boom Boom is unimpressed. She loves that cheap, stinky thing. Weird. Yeah, people say that to my wife a lot. (laughs) After Boom Boom uses her time bombs to blow the whole thing up, she just wants to find a ride that'll get them good and sick. But Wolfsbane's not feeling so hot, so Richter goes with her to the medical tent to see what's going on. And it turns out that actually the medical tent is just part of the trap that this entire circus actually is. They're drugged by the circus folks when you get there, and we find out that the circus folks are actually Skrull slavers who are looking for interesting humans to sell as slaves. The Skrulls, of course, are the pointy-eared green aliens with weirdly wrinkly chins uh, who are known for shape-shifting and thus infiltrating places. Right now, they're actually trapped in the forms they were in uh, at the time due to a hyperwave bomb being detonated in some Avengers Fantastic Four comics of the time. So the fact that, like, you know, they are there as Sebastian, the shirtless man, and the nurse, and a clown, I guess they were just doing some circus roleplay when that bomb blew up. Yeah, they made a face and the wind changed and it stayed that way. Like, almost Mm -hmm. literally. (laughs) Cannonball Sunspot and Boom Boom, though, have no time for looking after their friend. Uh, Instead, they head over to the House of Horrors, despite Sam's misgivings. And inside are a bunch of chained-up aliens, not your standard House of Horror stuff. And one of those aliens looks very familiar indeed. Yeah, there's a Debari hanging up in here. These are the broccoli people that Gene or Phoenix or whoever it turned out to be managed to massacre an entire planet of. 
Yeah. So that makes this doubly tragic. Like, the Dabari planet was destroyed, and then one of the only survivors is chained up in a Strahl circus trap. Upside down. It's terrible. Uh, An alien in a baseball cap tries to grab uh, Boom Boom. She ducks out of the way, yelling, Whoops! Low bridge! This comic is like, I mean, it's not amazing in general, aside from being gloriously bizarre, but it's Boom Boom is just straight up perfect. No notes. The alien does grab her because the boys are distracted looking at a display of very tiny people under glass. And those tiny people include a freaked out wolf Spain and Richter. They were shrunk by the people in the med tent. Never trust a school nurse. <laughs> I love the fact that Richter's powers still work. And not just that they still work, but they still work in proportion to the size that he is. So normal size Richter, of course, would be able to cause all sorts of big earthquakes and um, chaos and things falling into holes and stuff like that. This Richter basically turns the entire room into one of those big leather chairs you get in airports where you have to put like a pound in and it'll just massage your butt for a minute. You know, if uh, Richter ever needs a a little spare change, he could just do this as a side gig. Exactly. Go and sit on my knee. (laughs) I (laughs) break briefly. I guess that could be used for all sorts of things. I don't know. We'll ask Shatterstar. So the heroes all managed to use their powers to just barely defeat the Skrulls, uh, including all of the circus animals, who it turns out are not tame. They're just also Skrulls who were animals at the time. I love that detail. I love the fact that they can all talk as well. But because they're around humans so much, they must have to not talk. Like, as soon as they get out from their nightly circus gig that they're doing... They must just go backstage and just be like, oh, did you see that one? It just kept stroking my fur. Oh, the, the people, honestly, I must go and shower. They're just incredibly precious, like, theatre people. I want to read a comic about these folks. Yeah, well, one of the really interesting things about the Skrulls, I think, is that they had um, a brief and unexpected spin-off called the Skrull Kill Crew, which some people may remember, which was written by Grant Morrison and Mark Miller, and it was drawn by Steve Yowell, and it was a sequel to Fantastic Four issue two, at the end of which a bunch of Skrulls get stuck in cow form. As it turns out, years later, the cows have been massacred, they've gone into the food chain, and people have got basically mad Skrull disease. And so this this group of people who have got superpowers and are also dying as a result of having eaten Skrull burgers. And they, they had a limited series of five issues. They came back in Avengers Initiative during Secret Invasion. They had another uh, miniseries not that long after that. But um, in general, they've not been seen around very much. I mean, most of them did die as part of the, the storyline, but... Still, interesting thing that uh, scrolls get stuck as animals way more than you would think. It's true. Or is it one of those things where it actually is rare, just like it's rare for someone to be a superhero? It's just that it's more interesting, so that's what you get the comics about. There are just plenty of scroll civilians just going around being accountants or whatever. We just, you know, never get a four-color punch fest about them. Exactly. True tales of double-entry bookkeeping would not sell quite so well. I mean, I might buy it. At least one issue, just to give it a shot. So long as they're true tales. 
Boom Boom is very pleased because being in a brawl means that she's allowed to blow up whatever scenery is nearby, according to Western movies, which uh, she believes that may be some motivated reasoning. But that's our Tabitha. <laughs> the Strolls, for their part, assemble all the circus buildings into a giant rocket ship and fly away, presumably into whatever miniseries is currently being devised by listeners of this very episode right now. It's like a carny Voltron. It's amazing. It just all clips together like the greatest transformer that never existed and flies off into space. Absolutely wonderful. It is. But unfortunately, one scroll didn't make it. There was one scroll who was transformed into a mouse, and that mouse is watching in the present day back in the framing story. As Cable marvels at Wolfsbane's endless hope at believing some things must be pure, even if circuses have a weird habit of being run by either scrolls or the circus of crime. Yeah, that scroll never turns up again. One of the scrolls describes the carnival as being a sophisticated trap. Now, I will begrudgingly allow them trap, that's fair enough. But genuinely, if this is their idea of sophisticated, then I mean, I can see why Elijah Laserfist never brings it up in conversation. Okay, let us once again acknowledge, even though this takes us further afield from Generation X, that Lyjah Laserfist is perhaps the greatest name in the history of any universe, Marvel, ours, or otherwise. <laughs> it's excellent. She's basically the Benedict Cumberbatch of the Marvel Universe. Yes! Thunderclaw Bandersnatch! <laughs> So there you have it, a random New Mutants villain to replace a random Generation X villain. Both circus-related. What are the odds? But as we say, we've got Larry Hammer's first issue of Generation X to pick up on now, and that is Generation X issue 33, Thieves in the Night. This issue is indeed written by Larry Hama, penciled by Steve Harris, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Marie Javins and Michael Higgins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. So yeah, Scott Lobdell's Generation X run is over. He was one of the creators of the book and on it for a very long time. And after a three-issue stint covering Operation Zero Tolerance by James Robinson, here we are with Hama. Yeah, the creative team on this book is Hama, Hannah, and Harris, which kind of suggests that Mark Powers is hiring creators in alphabetical order. That may explain some things. So the issue opens with Emma driving the five current Generation X members into town for a meal after burning dinner. But wait a minute. We know that canonically, Emma Frost is a terrible cook. Remember when she was brainwashed by Onslaught and tried to make ketchup and cheese omelets for the kids? It would be very Emma to say, well, obviously that was only because I was brainwashed by Onslaught. Give me another shot at doing this and just destroy another dinner. <sighs> Emma Frost, you tried. Probably. And the character's writing here is, it's a little strange. It's a bit, a bit much, I guess would be the way I might put it. Skin is telling jokes about women, you know, as a species, that he, quote, downloaded from the net. And uh, Husk is being a little over the top, saying, Some of us are not amused by your juvenile sex attempt at humor. It's like the various characters have been just distilled down to a personality trait or two, which, after the runs we got, both from Lobdell and, briefly, from Robinson, does feel like a step down. I hope that Hama gets the characters' voices better as this run continues. We'll see. Emma gives the kids various different options of where they might like to go. They all decide that the diner is the number one choice. Emma is not impressed by this because she had the fancy French restaurant, 
in mind uh, where she was going to have Steak au Poivre, which I think is one of uh, the M kids' names, uh, something like that. The fact that the kids of Generation X have passed up the opportunity to go to apparently Wonton Wigwam speaks very poorly of them. Like, I can imagine the dim sum feast that they would have had if they'd gone there. I kind of want to go there myself. Maybe I'm just hungry. <laughs> Alas, at the diner, town bullies get all bully-tacular at, you know, the university kids. Emma, at least, is being pretty in character. Kindly disregard the buffoon, if you please. This is the culmination of your training. To be unfazed by the mindless babbling of the ignorant and uncouth. The kids, of course, don't, and a fight almost breaks out when Jubilee drops some fireworks down the back of one of their pants. And it's looking like things might get pretty dicey until the local police chief, Chief OTA, throws the bullies out. And we learn a little bit about this guy and why he's so anti-bigotry, aside from that being the correct and proper stance to have. Apparently he and his wife are descended from Huguenots, Ojibwe Native Americans, Armenians, and Jews, so he's not a fan of bigotry. He is, however, still very much a law and order kind of guy, so he wants to see what's under Chamber's scarf to make sure that Chamber is, you know, not on a wanted poster or something. But thanks to Emma's telepathy, OTA just sees a normal teen under there. And we mention this detail not because it seems relevant here, but because it will become relevant. This guy and his deal and his relationship with Super Stuff is actually going to become kind of significant in the next big arc. The bullies at this time are reassured by the fact that their co-bullies are doing crimes, though, because there are some other teens at work in this town that have slipped in through the school's gate, broken in, and are robbing the place. After deciding not to stick all the residents' toothbrushes up their butts, really, they wander toward the med lab to see if they can steal some drugs. Unfortunately, that's where the twins, Thing One and Pumpernickel, are sleeping. Emma is really not shaking off this bad-at-looking-after-kids thing by leaving the twins with a razor-sharp girl, is she? Because she's left penance in charge. She has, and we didn't mention Penance as one of the students in our previously on. I always go back and forth on how much she counts as one, but indeed, she is a bright red, razor-sharp girl wearing strips of leather and buckles like she's a Final Fantasy protagonist who was found on the school lawn in Gen X number one. She doesn't speak. It's unclear how much she does or doesn't understand the people around her, but she does at least seem to have a very good heart and be very protective of the people that she cares about. Also sharp. Mm. She's going to be playing a very big part in M's story over the next little while. And because she's such a great design, I think, really, uh, she gets to hang around in various incarnations as a character inhabited by different people, essentially, for a number of years after this. Uh, still now, in fact. So when Generation X get back to the school, they discover they've been robbed and it's a lot of stuff that's important to them. We have Emma's jewelry, Sink's life savings, Chambers CDs, Husk's diary, Skin's sentimental box of stuff, which is to say his handgun in a cigar box, and Jubilee's cowboy hat. Oh shit, that is the cowboy hat that Logan gave her when he left the X-Men in Wolverine number 75, which just makes me miss reading a much better Larry Hama comic. These kids who have robbed the place say that one of the things that they have stolen is some fat beats. Now, there is no way on this earth that Jonathan Starsmore owns anything that could be described as fat beats. 
What do you think he does listen to? The Cure. Exclusively The Cure and uh, possibly like Fields of the Nephilim. That is objectively 100% correct. You're totally right. Thankfully, the twins themselves are okay. They have been moved by penance, uh, very carefully, I assume, into uh, an armoire, and she's watching over them. And the team knows that penance doesn't speak, but they try to see if she can get any kind of a clue as to who did this, who stole their stuff. At which point she pulls out a magazine with Bill and Hillary Clinton on the cover. Yeah, Skin can believe it. He's a little cynical about it, but as he says... Nixon did it. Why not Clinton? Jubilee at that point invites Skin to, and I quote, chomp down on a reality biscuit, which sounds like something from a super earnest anti-drug special. Maybe she's just peer pressuring him. Maybe that's what Larry Hama should be writing at this point in his career. It turns out, though, no, it was just some kids in Clinton Halloween masks, not actually Bill and Hillary. Although, I guess that would have given the Republicans another random thing to yell at Hillary about a little bit ago. The kids do follow the bullies, not Clintons, and mildly womp them. And when the kids drive away from this fight, Chief OTA shows up to arrest them, knowing that they are bad dudes who have not tried to use their bad dude skills to rescue the president's daughter. <laughs> so the Jenny- Chelsea in this case. Hmm. The Gen X get their valuables back, mostly, but they're missing Jubilee's hat, Skin's box, and Husk's diary, which she is claiming is a textbook. The missing bully still has those, and the missing bully is, in fact, Chief OTA's daughter. So at this point, the Gen X gang are literally six characters in search of an OTA. (laughs) (laughs) Al, I don't know if you're fired or if I want to give you this job permanently. (laughs) Wow! Yeah, sorry, everyone. But meanwhile, there is another B-plot running, which is to do with M-plate and his little sidekick stroke majordomo DOA, who are trapped in this pocket dimension together. So M-plate and DOA have been villains in Gen X since the very beginning. M-plate, we know, is M's brother and also has one of the best character designs in all of 90s comics. He's this big, hulking dude with jagged spikes of hair and a big gas mask and shadows and mist all around him. And his hands have these little mouths on them, and it's real creepy. DOA is just a tiny little trollish man wearing a chauffeur's outfit. But they are trapped in the dark pocket dimension that M-plate has always been trapped in since his mutant powers manifested. He tries to sup on the genetic marrow of mutants in his brief excursions out to allow himself more excursions out to escape this place of pain. And we haven't really seen much of this dimension. I like this version of it. It's just a very dark room with an old overstuffed chair in it, a small uncontained fire in the middle, and random old-timey portraits on the walls. It's very ill-defined and very just minimalistically representative of the real world, but mainly notable for its emptiness, for the fact that most of it is just void. Yeah, and I can't imagine it's an enormous amount of fun for the two of them just hanging out there with only each other for company. This grandstanding villain who is prone to making huge villain speeches to the only person who is there, who's this little schlubby dude. And a little schlubby dude who is really not nearly receptive enough to the grandstanding villain speeches. But they're going to find that they're distracted by something, at least, because a public bathroom door has randomly appeared in the wall. DOA points it out, but M-Plate is not impressed. 
This had better be of sufficient import to warrant distracting me from my portentous reverie, idiot. And that's Larry Hammer for you. Amazing. So good. I do love an appropriately overdramatic villain. Like, if you're going to do evil, you might as well at least eat all of the scenery as you're eating kittens or whatever. Exactly. So this door opens and tumbling out of it comes a woman in a dominatrix outfit and a rat with a smiley face on its butt who have come to propose an alliance to Emplate. These are Chimera and Dirtnap, respectively, who were minor villains from Hama's Wolverine run. And we're going to see a lot of little bits and pieces imported from the Wolverine run, usually, I think, to the credit, because some of that stuff was bananas in the best way. Absolutely. This bathroom door was, in fact, a warp chamber that can go between dimensions. And this intrigues Emplate, because, remember, him escaping this dimension tends to be pretty agonizing and require a great deal of genetic marrow. So between M-Plate and Chimera and Dirtnap, there may be some kind of deal to be done where effectively one of them's got the means and one of them's got the method. And we'll see that come about in the next few issues. In the meantime, this issue itself doesn't feel that consequential. It feels a little bit like a second fill-in issue. It really does, yeah. I mean, certainly this part with Emplate is going to be a big deal, but it's like a couple of pages. The bulk of the issue is just Gen X fighting bullies, essentially, which isn't exactly the most superheroic topic. I mean, certainly relevant. You could do that as as a brief issue between major stories, but strange way to start a run, you know? Yeah, it, like you want to give some kind of impression of the, the threats that your characters are going to face in, if you're starting a new run on, on particularly a big team book that's had only a couple of writers before and one of them in particular is very associated with the team but Hama is playing it much more low-key when he comes in here he wants to show the group interacting with each other he has things like the the scene in the car they're kind of underwritten but it feels like this is Hama learning the characters as he goes almost and it does give, you know, nice moments like the, the scene in the diner, which is pretty good. But it really does feel like it's a work in progress at this point. So as with so many runs in the era the podcast is covering, we'll see how it goes. So we had a little more room. I mean, we've only covered two and a half issues and not a whole lot consequential happened. So we were thinking rather than jumping into the giant Gen X story coming up, perhaps we could take a look at Another one shot from around this era. Another seasonally, well, more appropriate than it could be one shot. Specifically, the Generation X holiday special called Yes Jubilee, There Is a Santa Claus. This is written by Joseph Harris. It's penciled by Adam Polina. Inks are by Mark Morales, Rich Faber, Rob Lee, Bob Wycheck, and Walden Wong. Colors are by Paul Trotroni, and letters are by Richard Starkings and Connor Craft and Liz Agriotis. Now, Joseph Harris is somebody who did quite a bit of work at Marvel around this time, sort of late 90s. He wrote a few different ongoings. He did the Bishop ongoing, which we'll see in a couple of years' time, I guess. He wrote Slingers, which people who love D-list characters like myself will have some kind of soft spot for. And he'll also write a mini called X-Men Liberators, which I think is like 
Wolverine Colossus and Kitty Pride or something like that. It's it's a weird little collection of characters. I'd actually never even heard of that one until we were researching this episode. So I I guess we'll get to that in the podcast. So Slingers, I vaguely remember Slingers. That was kind of a a Spider-Man spinoff, right? It was, yeah. There was a story called... Oh, was it called like Identity Crisis? <laughs> I don't think it could have been called Identity Crisis, but it was called something like that. And basically, uh, Spider-Man gets accused of crime, as so often happens. But this time he feels that he needs to retire the Spider-Man identity and he takes on four separate costumed identities instead. So you've got Ricochet, Hornet, Prodigy and Dusk, who kind of they each embody different aspects of Spidey as a character. So Hornet is the kind of technical genius guy. Dusk is the I crawl around on walls at nighttime person. Ricochet is the I bounce around and give quips to people. And Prodigy is the and I'm a good superhero kind of character. And after that story had run its course, those four costumed identities were repurposed into this team book called Slingers, where four kids were given the costumes by a mysterious benefactor and had teeny angsty adventures. And the creative team on that was Joseph Harris writing and Chris Cross on pencils. And it was it was an interesting experiment. And before we recorded this episode, you were telling me something truly horrifyingly impressive about the first issue of that series. Variant covers are one thing, variant interiors are quite another. I can just about get on board with 50 different covers, one for every US state if you're launching US Avengers. What was much less easy to swallow, even at the time as a you know 18-year-old who would buy pretty much anything, was the fact that the four uh, variant first issues of Slingers had eight to ten different variant pages inside so depending on which version you bought you would get a subplot starring one of the four members of the slingers now it was all character stuff it wasn't anything that was particularly plot relevant but you don't know that one issue in and so it was essentially an incredibly cynical marketing ploy targeted at getting people to buy a double-sized extra expensive first issue four times and receive something like two-thirds of the same issue every time? That is some Lex Luthor-level shit. It really was. It was absolutely ridiculous. But this is about as uncynical a comic as you could really get. This is a real kind of uh, the magic of Christmas sort of a story. And it starts off with a Winter Wonderland recital. And that's from the narrator. And after Jubilee interrupts those lyrics with a humph, the narrator directly addresses our girl. This is Jubilee. Say hi now. Humbug. Yes, well, she's in a bit of a mood. I hate Christmas. She hates Christmas. Tsk, tsk, tsk. This is really playful, and I kind of love it. And Polina's pencils make it even more so. Adam Polina's weird figures fit in so nicely here in what is a very off-kilter story. He's doing lots of little um, fripperies around the edges. He's drawing random Christmas toys in the margins. It's a bit Chris Pichalo. It's a bit Sergio Aragonis. It's, it's awesome, really. At the same time as this is happening, there's a kid called Matthew who is being bullied. 
he gets pushed down in the snow, his lunch money gets stolen, and then he manifests mutant powers. He controls the bodies of the children around them to sort of throw them around uh, until the rest of them run off, and then he falls to his knees with his head in his hands. This is Matthew. You could say he's special, but he'd probably disagree. Poor kid. But Matthew, like the Cylons, has a plan, and it involves leaving cookies out for Santa while lying in wait scowling. We'll get to that, but first, meanwhile, meanwhile, there's a very happy Christmas occurring indeed, as the orphan maker decorates a Christmas tree while Nanny bakes cookies. I love these two. Listeners, if you don't recall... The Nanny and Orphan Maker were a pair of characters who debuted back in the 80s. Nanny is a scientist trapped in slash wearing, depending on the era, some egg-shaped armor. And Orphan Maker is her large, not exactly adult, adopted son wearing a bunch of really badass, spiky, gun-covered armor himself. Because if that armor ever gets taken off, his mutant power will manifest and destroy everything. If you've uh, been following Sabretooth and the Exiles, that does, in fact, factor in, like, this week. They're really fun. I mean, they're horrible. They're serial killers. They go around murdering the parents of mutant children, brainwashing the mutant children to forget their parents, and then adopting those mutant children to be lost boys and lost girls, as Nanny puts it. But they're really fun while they do it. They are. They're great. I do think it's a little bit worrying that anytime we see Nanny and Orphan Maker, they don't have a increasingly larger coterie of lost boys and lost girls hang around with them it does kind of suggest that nanny gets bored of these kids quite quickly and there may be you know a sack and a, a brick and a jump into the river involved i would not put it past her orphan maker's working on his christmas list at this point and it's this scroll which it is basically endless and it's got all these things on it like laser darts and pet robots and Boba Fett and Xena Warrior Princess action figures. So, you know, he's an equal opportunities um, kid who wants to play with toys. I don't know where that long, tattered scroll thing came from for being associated with Christmas lists, but but I love it. And this is one of those. It's fantastic. So their real Christmas tradition for Nanny and Orphan Maker is orphaning a little mutant child. So they head off to the mall. Now, this is where it ties into Slingers because <laughs> Nanny and Orphan Maker's second target ever was the kid who would go on to become Ricochet, who was part of the Slingers, which Joseph Harris also wrote. So Joseph Harris is to Nanny, as Howard Mackie is to Kandra, effectively. I think I like this choice better. As much fun as Kandra's lobster shibari outfit is when it's drawn. Meanwhile, 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 Generation X, you know, the stars of the comic, they're at the mall. Skin is waiting in line to see the big man, a.k.a. Santa, and he's being gently mocked by Sink and M for this. And, you know, fair enough, they're ragging on their friend. It doesn't seem to be malicious. It's just a bit of teasing. It's a bit odd that M is in this, though. I don't know exactly where this issue sits and which version of M this is supposed to be. Yeah, I checked a couple of chronology projects online that try to put issues in order. They say that this issue takes place right in the middle of the M-plate story, which would make no sense. So I figured, given that, eh, we might as well cover it now. But unfortunately, that does mean we don't know which M it is. We don't know whether it's actual teenager or two children plus trench coat. Eh, it's fine. 
Husk is moping about the fact that her flights have been cancelled, so she can't go home. John was trying to empathise with that, but Husk does point out he wasn't going home anyway. But that doesn't mean I didn't want to, or at least that I didn't want to want to. You know, I get that. Yeah, it's a, a relatable emotion, I think. But Husk is so mopey that she just wanders off just before Jono gives her a gift. So he just throws it in a bin. And that just ups the mope quotient even further. Jubilee is carrying a big stack of wrapped presents through the mall past various Adam Polina-drawn, strange-looking people. And when she trips and drops them and then sees a happy family all together, Polina just nails this mix of anger and sadness on her face. Remember, she is an orphan. Her family was murdered when she was a little girl. So all of this joy, seeing everything work out so well for everyone around her, kind of hurts. And of course, at that point, Orphan Makeup comes crashing through the ceiling because it's a superhero comic, so we shouldn't dwell on the sad bits too much. He remembers the Generation X kids because he's met them before in actually, weirdly enough, another Christmas issue, which was Generation X issue four. So he is so disappointed to see them. So you're why my mutant detector went off. You're going to have to tell me where your parents live so I can off them later. Now, come on, guys. If we get home early enough, Nanny will make cocoa. Hmm. Orphan Maker is extremely disturbing. So in previous appearances, sometimes it seems like he doesn't really understand that what he's doing to these parents is killing them. Here, he clearly does. I don't know. Which version of that do you like better? I like when Orphan Maker is sufficiently detached from reality that it's almost like we get a set of cheap headphones and they don't quite connect properly and you have to wiggle them around a little bit. And sometimes it makes the connection, sometimes it doesn't that's the the only version of Orphan Maker that I can uh, really get behind because if he knew all the time about what he was doing, then he would be completely irredeemable and I'd never want to read comics about him. However, if he didn't know at all, then he would just be kind of simple. Yeah, and there's a certain melancholy to that, but it can also be played for laughs a little bit, and that's a good mix. I like to laugh and cry. Orphan Maker's got this pixie dust, which he uses to knock out the Generation X kids. As he says about it himself, We used to use it a while back. Then we stopped. Then Nanny managed to get out of her egg suit, and now she likes it on again. And then we made some more orphans, and Christmas is tomorrow, and anyway, it's pixie dust. Generation X get captured is the upshot of the whole thing. But Orphan Maker still has got an orphan to make. We know these kinds of Christmas stories. You've got to get that one thing done. It's Christmas Eve. Jubilee sees him flying by and she follows him. And it's a good thing that she does because Orphan Maker is about to murder a couple of sleeping parents. So she chases him away from the parents, but he still gets the kid. The narrator being a narrator is still watching. Jubilee knows plenty about orphans and Christmas and hating both concepts. She knows the two shouldn't mix, that they unfortunately do, and that Christmas is just another day in the twisted little life we all lead. I love the way the narration makes this feel like a Christmas fable. Like, it actually is very effective. The little scrolly holiday festive font helps as well, so well done as usual, Comicraft folks. Absolutely. Now, Nanny is quick to point out that he's actually got the wrong kid. He was supposed to be finding Matthew, who, as we know from earlier in the issue, has got mutant powers. And Jubilee 
falls from her aerial flight onto the roof where she finds reindeer. And the reindeer pushes her down the chimney. And that leads her into that little mutant kid who has captured Santa Claus thanks to his ability to control people's bodies. Let's just let all of that sink in for a second. I love comics. See, Matthew wanted Santa to make him not a mutant, but Matthew now feels pretty awful about messing everything up. So he's a little bit sad about that, but of course we're in a sad moment, so Orphan Maker must burst through a wall, as he does. And Orphan Maker's extremely impressed by Santa. And Santa is very concerned by Orphan Maker. As you can imagine, the image of this giant armoured Orphan Maker jumping into Santa's lap is kind of delightful. Yeah, uh, Polina does a great job at just drawing Orphan Maker, period. Like, he's this terrifying, hulking, machinery-covered giant, but he has this very childlike body language. And I I freaking love it. But uh, yeah, like you mentioned, Santa Claus is a little concerned about the Orphan Maker. He, he knows him. You've been... well... You've been a bad boy, Peter. But there's still time to put things right. Are you listening, Peter? Are you listening to Santa Claus? Alas, he is not, because he has just gotten a call from Nanny, who's been beaten up and tied up by Generation X. So off he goes to the rescue. Uh, Matthew, meanwhile, has fallen asleep. He's all tuckered out from his day of mind-controlling Santa Claus. And that gives Santa and Jubilee a chance to talk a little. Santa knew Orphan Maker, but he also knows Jubilee. Jubilee wrote a letter to Santa once in her life. She said that she didn't want any gifts. She didn't want the usual Christmas things. All she wanted was for Santa to bring her parents back to her. Santa remembers this letter because, of course he does, he's Santa. And he says he's sorry. That's just not within his wheelhouse. As for why Santa was able to just get up and leave when it became necessary to do so, even though he'd been controlled... It probably didn't have to do with Matthew falling asleep. It might have had something to do with the fact that Santa mentioned that Jubilee wasn't affected by Matthew's powers because Matthew can't use his powers on mutants. So Santa Claus... (gasps) In fact, according to 1991's Marvel Holiday Special, Santa Claus is canonically the most powerful mutant that Cerebro has ever detected. (laughs) It's just absolutely awesome like santa claus i'm sure there must have been a part in santa claus's history where he has led some kind of wetworks x-force outfit for professor x and it's just never been published yet there's a one shot waiting to happen we've had team x now it's time for team c (laughs) so on christmas morning jubilee wakes up she's still miserable and humbugging about the whole christmas thing but she finds that somebody has left an adorable teddy bear in a Santa hat waiting for her. And she cuddles it and she smiles and the rest of Generation X celebrates around her. I mean, it's no resurrected parents as a gift, but it is really sweet. And this being Adam Polina, that is a damn cute teddy bear. And maybe it's just the general good-heartedness of this issue, but I, I can't be cynical about this. It's just, it's just lovely. It's absolutely wonderful. And it does kind of pose some questions about some of the other things that have happened in the Marvel Universe involving Santa, whether Santa 
would in fact have been, for example, a, a target of Operation Zero Tolerance. But speaking of questions, some of you have questions too. Asimov Fangirl asks on Tumblr, Do you think Santa Claus, the most powerful mutant, would move out to Krakoa, or at least have a vacation cottage there? Yes, absolutely. Santa is all about communion and bringing people together, so I think he would see Krakoa as just a fantastic place to hang out. With the Summer's House, obviously, being one of the habitats that is linked to Krakoa, Santa presumably has the equal and opposite, being the Winter Palace, where Santa and everyone who has vaguely Christmas or uh, coldness-themed powers or, you know, names or anything can live together. And his equivalent of the three-door bedroom link-up that Scott, Jean, and Logan have got obviously is going to be Santa Claus in the middle with Emma Frost on one side and Iceman on the other. I'd felt so bad about Emma being excluded from the triumvirate in the Summer's house, so that's perfect. I'm glad she's still having fun. Jolly, jolly fun. Probably not Captain Britain, asked on Tumblr. Are there any X characters who've been mischaracterized by writers in a way that make them more interesting than their conventional portrayal? So I don't know if I would use the word mischaracterized, because the nature of being an X-Men fan, or really a, a fan of any franchise that different creators periodically take over, is that you'll have more common versions of a character, but I don't know that there's an official version of a character. That being said, if I had to pick one character to answer that question, I'm going to have to go with Marrow from Cy Spurrier's X-Force. She was quite a departure in that book. She was uh, way more unhinged, way more gleefully sadistic than she was even before, even in her Gene Nation days. But she was a great character. And that level of just being out there really did make the tragedy that had gotten her there, which we learn about in that run, all the more effective. Superhero comics, they can be subtle, but they certainly don't have to be. And sometimes they're at their best when they aren't. I think that would be an example of that fact. What about you, Al? Well, in terms of characters who are characterized in ways which aren't subtle i think for me you can't beat the way magneto was written by jim shooter in the original secret wars where rather than being this kind of tortured noble i mean that this was around the time where we were really starting to see claremont dig into magneto as a character um we get to see a different side of magneto which is a side that lounges around in short dressing gowns and lies on chaise long and drinks fruit cocktails and tries to chat up the wasp. And he's an incredible version of Magneto. He is this weird Austin Powers version of Magneto. And he, I wouldn't want to see him like that forever, but, you know, for a 112 issue storyline, that was fine. I enjoyed that. And maybe that was a precursor to one of my favorite versions of Magneto, written actually by Chris Claremont, which was when he was hanging out, wearing very little on octopus time and romancing Lee Forrester, a fine, fine side of Eric Magnus Lenger, Max Eisenhart guy. And with that, Jane Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and Edinburgh, Scotland, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. 
Our show is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. We're holding off on Hawk Talk until Jay's back, so no episode next week. But in two weeks, Excalibur faces both aliens and tragedy. (laughs) 